0: arc of history right now is that absolutely you know, technology advancements are always going to be critically important for improving standard of living for people and solving a lot of society's problems. And so I just felt it was the long-term right thing, both from myself and what I was interested in and what I was passionate about, and also something that can contribute to the world and the markets would come around.
1: After a pivot away from medicine to the business world... Will Uppington still needed models to show him what that world was all about. Through a stint in consulting and a series of technology startup experiences, he gained the knowledge he needed to start his own venture. Find out just how important models really can be and how knowing what's inside them is what gives them power on today's Roads Taken with me, Leslie Jennings Rowley. Today I'm here with Will Uppington, and he's going to talk about making his way in the world in a slightly different way than he had anticipated, and like, I think, all of us. And it's just lovely to have you here, Will.
0: Happy to be here, Leslie. Thank you.
1: Great. So we're going to start the same way I start all of these, with the same two questions. Well, when we were in college, who were you? And when we were getting ready to leave, who did you think you would become?
0: Uh, so in college, I spent... A good amount of time in both academics and athletics so i was on the cross-country indoor track and outdoor track teams so it was a three-season athletic endeavor and that took a good amount of time with practices and meets and things like that and then i first started coming into dartmouth thinking i was going to go into medicine my father is a doctor and i was uh, had worked in hospitals During high school, and felt that uh, medicine was my calling. Mm. Um, So I started out being pre med. And then, after working a little bit too much in hospitals, where I did not have the most glamorous job, it it involved cleaning uh, equipment and things like that after operations, uh, I decided maybe medicine wasn't my calling. And so I then just pursued what I was interested in at the time, which was economics and government. And that's what I decided to do my I had a double major in economics and government. So that was essentially most of my time at Dartmouth. It was mostly split between academics and athletics. There was, you know, a few a bit a few bits of time for, for some fun as well. Uh that would be very much in the typical nature of most Dartmouth students, so I probably don't need to go into too much detail there.
1: <laughs> no, I think people know that. And well, some of the fun actually led to your marriage, right?
0: That's right i'm I'm married to another fellow Dartmouth 1996 graduate, uh, Lauren Curry, uh, was her name back in in college, and we uh, met we actually did a uh, foreign study abroad program in London and definitely benefited loved the, those programs. I think that's a really nice aspect of dartmouth and then uh, that's when we first met and then we, we started dating our senior year and then, and then kept going and was in part of that first flight of marriages that happen, you know, after, after undergrad, if you find your person in undergrad. That's
1: right. And, That's uh, right. and
0: so, yeah, that uh, Dartmouth has been uh, obviously hugely impactful in my life in, in more ways than one.
1: Yeah. Well, and I think that unlike, you know, many of us who did not have that great realization of finding the one, then it really did help shape like where you were going and what you were doing. So as you were leaving, where did you think those next few steps would take both of you actually?
0: Yeah, so as, as we were leaving, it was interesting because I had, I would say, a third transformation within Dartmouth. Because after I decided to double major in government and economics, I, I came to this realization that I might be leaving Dartmouth without some hard skills. <laughs> uh, so actually, my senior year, I decided to take Chinese and computer science courses and some operations research and math courses. So I, I, it actually was quite the opposite of what other people did. My senior was not the, the most fun going to language lab early and then doing a, a bunch of introductory math and, and computer science courses. But uh, I did feel at that point that my path would take me more into technology over time. And that's why I did some of those courses. But I had not really taken enough to fully m- make that transition. So as I was leaving Dartmouth, I uh, selected consulting as kind of a way to go learn about the business world, since I had not had a lot of mentors in the business world coming from a family of mostly doctors and, and, and professionals like that, uh, and, but do it in, in a somewhat technical way. So uh, my first job out after Dartmouth was doing consulting, but we were doing I was running um, linear optimization models to predict potential electricity market prices during that time uh, of the electric industry was going through some deregulation. And there was a lot of need for help in terms of what's the new market price is going to be for electricity, which had never been market driven before. And then... What are the implications of deregulation? Where should we build power plants and things like that? And so I did consulting first at, at, at a company which has now since been acquired and then at Boston Consulting Group did a bunch of consulting in that area.
1: It seemed like the right thing to do when you're still kind of in that mindset of skill building. I'm sure you learned a ton from that, but kind of the stair-step progression out of those early years in consulting is often business school. And is, that's, that's your path too, right?
0: That's right. So, well, I actually, at Boston Consulting Group, I did a bunch of work in energy, but I also started doing some work in technology because I was out in the Bay Area and there were a lot of technology clients out in the Bay Area. And that's what I became interested in. I did make a decision at that point, which was, do I want my career to be in energy-related field or do I want my career to be in information technology-related field? And I felt that while my heart was kind of very much in energy and still is in terms of that being a great way to contribute to the world. I felt that there was so much regulation there that it would be just really slow to make progress, whereas in information technology, there's much less regulation and you can do things much the faster, you can accomplish things much faster. So I then went into venture capital, actually, after that, where I was doing both information technology and also energy investing. Uh, and then after uh, did uh, a couple years in venture capital, which was a very interesting time because I joined... Venture capital in 1999, mm-hmm. and at that time there was a very big bubble going on—the inter- the famous internet bubble—and then that bubble burst. And then I was doing venture capital in the aftermath uh, of the bubble bursting. Um, well,
1: that's educational.
0: Yes, it's a great, <laughs> great education to see both the highs and the and the kind of lemming mentality that can occur during bubbles, uh, and then see the aftermath of that and the almost the pendulum swing to the. To the opposite end of the spectrum, where things that did make sense weren't getting funded just because people were scared in the in the aftermath of that bubble bursting. So I went, I did at that point in 2002 go to business school. I went to Harvard Business School uh, with my wife Lauren, and I used that. I would made essentially the decision to go into software entrepreneurship at that point in time, and I used business school as a way to facilitate that transition to where I was going to go from. I'd been in essentially consulting and venture capital, helping people to do other things. And then I wanted to go do those things myself, go build companies myself. And, I use, and that's how I, I use business school as a way to enable me to do that. Plus, you know, business school is a great life experience. And I figured the worst that came to the worst is that even if I kind of retire two years later, because I spent two years in business school, what would I want to do at that time? I'd love to do something like business school because you meet a great set of people uh, and you have a kind of a great, great life experience. So uh, we both went as well. That was also part of it. And it was it was a fantastic experience.
1: Yeah. Though I will say in hindsight now, it was totally a, the right path to be thinking software entrepreneurship. I mean, that's that seems very logical. But at that moment when you'd seen that bust and you'd seen it from the side of... And, and now you'd seen, as you said, the shift to the other side of, whoa, we're really going to get down to fundamentals and people have to really prove themselves to get backing. Like, that seems like not the logical, oh, I'll go into software entrepreneurship. What, what was that thinking to get you to be so kind of for, forward thinking when you're mired in that, like, ugh?
0: I know, that's a great point. And, and in fact, you can often track bubbles a little bit by what MBAs are doing and how much MBAs are going into a particular field. And there were a ton of MBAs graduating in 2000 and 1999 that were going into technology. And then after 2000, a lot less did. And when I went to business school, there was it was still at a relatively low point for business school graduates to go into technology. So it was a little bit of, a, like you said, not following the stream, if you will, a little bit uh, and, and going into a little tributary or something like that. Mm-hmm. So I think ultimately you know, my perspective on what people should do is that they should be doing something that is, that is personally passionate for them uh, and that they feel is their way to both enjoy life but also contribute to the world. And I just felt that there's so much still to be done in information technology or even energy technologies that there's no way, while you may have little bubbles here and there, the arc of history right now is that absolutely... You know, technology advancements are always going to be critically important for improving standard of living for people and solving a lot of society's problems. And so I just felt it was the long term right thing, both from myself and what I was interested in and what I was passionate about, and also something that can contribute to the world and the markets would come around.
1: Right. And that is certainly borne out. So good job being forward thinking. So tell us about where you found yourself. What did you join? And then ultimately, what have you created?
0: Yeah. So after business school, I decided to go into startups and learn how startups work and how you actually build startups. So I joined a company with about 80 people that I thought would be successful just because I wanted to have that experience of, of seeing a successful startup. It was both a good or a bad thing, but it turned out I uh, was right and it was going to be successful, but it didn't quite give me the runway because actually while I was in business school, the company got acquired. So I got my <laughs> job offer, I agreed to, to join the company, and then the company got acquired. And then after, right after I joined, the company that acquired my startup actually got acquired again. <laughs> no. So I ended up, after a few months, working at quite a large company called Juniper Networks. I got my job offer from a startup called Neo Terrace, which had built a security and and a virtual private networking technology, a kind of a next generation VPN technology. Uh, And then that company got bought by another company called Netscreen. And then Netscreen got bought by Juniper Networks. Now, the good thing was, is they kept us as kind of our Mm. own team within the big company for at least a year. So I did get some of that startup experience. But I also ended up getting some experience working at a large company. I did that for about two and a half years. And then I joined another startup, a startup which was in analytics and in um, search technology. And I joined that quite early in, in, you know, around a number of employees was around 30. And then worked there for another three years. The company eventually grew to several hundred people and over 100 million in revenue and ultimately got acquired by another large company. So that was a great experience because we started really from the beginning when there was, a, there was a barely a, a V1 product or first version of the product. And I was leading product management. And so really helped learn how do you develop uh, a product that is going to be successful when you're starting from essentially scratch or ground zero. So that was a great experience. And then after that, I just went to a, a next smaller company. So I joined a company where I was the fifth employee I was the first person outside of the engineering and the founding team. And I teamed up with a great founder, a person called Raj Dadada, and got really the experience of kind of building it with him and the other co-founder, the three of us, met every Sunday for four years to make all the major decisions of the company. I built out lots of different teams, built out all the different products. And so that was just a, a kind of a great, great experience. And then, you know, fast forward to now... I was with that company for about nine, ten years, and then I got that company to a certain point where I, which I felt I could be proud of, and then I'd identified a, a problem that I thought was worth solving, and that led me to to actually be a co-founder in the company that I'm at now.
1: So that's really interesting, Will, that you had these kind of shorter stints at startups, got them through their kind of infancy stage and you know adolescence to being acquired stage and that seemed to be you know you did that a couple times and then you stay for a really long time in in this world right yeah. um in one place and then you're able to make the move what what do you think it was about did you did you think you needed that time to see all kind of the full progression of a business, staying its own entity for you to say, I can, I, not only do I see this problem, but I, now I know that I can do all of these things. Is that what it was? Or was it something else that just, it was the right time for you to go?
0: So the reason I stayed at the third company for a really long time is because I felt an obligation because I was essentially kind of like a quasi co-founder of the company. And the company actually had a, and this this often happens with companies The company had, um, you know, quite a journey. So our first product was super successful initially. We were one of the fastest growing software companies ever. We went, I was looking at the numbers, we went from zero to about 20 million in in three years in revenue. And um, that's pretty fast. But what we discovered was that the company could sell really well initially. But once you made that initial sale, it was quite hard to sustain the revenues. So we had to do a bit of a pivot. We had to create new products that we thought would be more sustainable. And I really took on that challenge in a significant way uh, and really architected a lot of the strategy for that pivot. And I felt an obligation and a passion to see that through. You know, when you take on investment from other people, I think that that's quite a significant obligation to kind of do your very best to, to make that investment valuable for our shareholders. And so you know we we did we did amazingly well, but we had to we had to execute this pivot. That's the main reason why I stayed for a really long time because I was in a leadership role and I was driving a lot of that change. And you know, fortunately, we were able to. It it was very difficult. It was very hard, uh, but we were able to execute that pivot. And um, the the great thing now is that we got the company to quite a good amount of, of revenue, greater than 50 million in revenue before I left. And then the company just did a recent financing. It just acquired another, another company. So it, its financing was done at quite a good, quite a good valuation, I be, believe close to a billion dollars. And so you know now, now it's really um, grown considerably you know, and, and that pivot has, has proved to be successful, though it took a lot of effort and time.
1: Yeah. So now you're putting that effort and time into your own baby. So tell us about the new company.
0: Yeah. So the company is called True Era. The goal of the company is essentially to remove the black box from machine learning so that people can build better machine learning applications that that perform at a high quality level and and that we can help them maintain that quality and performance of those applications. So the reason I got involved in this is that as part of my role in leading the product organization at Bloomreach, my last company, we started to use machine learning technology. Machine learning is probably a technology many people have heard of, but it's, a, it's the fundamental technology that underpins uh, artificial intelligence. And it's a way to essentially create a model from a set of data using machine learning algorithms. And those models can be used for A lot of very wide variety of things. They can be used to help drive self-driving cars. They can be used in facial recognition. They can be used to predict demand or predict whether machines need to get maintained, or they can be used to decide whether people should get loans or insurance. So they're really a very wide application. Machine learning and AI is considered to be one of the next waves within technology. But I found when we were starting to use this technology, it was very immature, There were a lot of challenges actually getting the technology to work. And I felt the root cause of a lot of those challenges was the black box nature of the technology. And why we call it a black box is because previously, if you're creating a model and if anybody's taken a econometrics course or anything like that or, or understands what regression models are, Those models are things where you create models out of data, but the human is actually kind of in charge in architecting that model and deciding what features are going to be in the model and exactly how the features of that model will be constructed. With machine learning, the value of it is that it's algorithms that are doing what people used to do before. And that allows you to use much, much larger sets of data. But the problem is that the resulting model is not something that a human really built by hand. The algorithms, in essence, built the model. And the models that they build are very complex. And because of that complexity and the more automated nature of building the model and the very large amounts of data that are used, when a model makes a particular prediction or output, you don't know why it's done that. And you don't know how the inputs to the model relate to the outputs of the model. And this creates a whole bunch of problems. It makes it harder to build models, but it makes it harder for people to trust models. It creates risks like, Models could potentially be biased. They could learn information from the past because we know that we're living in a world where, where bias exists and these algorithms are trained on past data. And how do you make sure that these models are not going to be biased? How do you make sure that we can use this technology ethically and responsibly? Uh, and then how do you make sure that this model and machine learning technology continues to perform over time because the world changes? Coronavirus and COVID is a, is a perfect example of that. If you, for example, had built a model that was trying to predict a car accident. Well, that, the model that you, if you use the data before COVID, where people drove a lot, there were lots of traffic jams and people who were commuting, that model would have learned certain, certain things, certain relationships between inputs and outputs. But now that people aren't commuting as much, it's a very different world. And that model that you've built before likely is not working as well. So how do you detect that and change that and, and, and solve that kind of problem? So that's, that's the company that we've, we've built today. It's based on research from my two co-founders who worked at Carnegie Mellon University, who did six years of research to figure out the mathematics for how to explain these models. So it's built on a technology called AI explainability, but it does a lot more than, more than that. So that's, that's, the, that's the latest project. And I think it's both really interesting from a technical and technology perspective, but what I really like about it and what I really wanted to do in terms of starting this company was doing something that I also felt would be beneficial for the world. There's a lot of fear about AI, and I feel that that fear is because is is partially caused by some of these challenges, and that we can help people adopt AI in a way that's responsible and ethical, uh, and reduces those fears.
1: Very cool. So when you look back to someone who felt that medicine was their calling and then who said, no, I, I see kind of a, a, a working world in business policy in my future. What would you say to the younger Will about where you are now? And what would he say about it to you?
0: Well, I might say broaden your horizons a little bit so you can get to this point a little bit faster. <laughs> I felt that, you know, I had a fairly... Not closeted, but uh, you know, it was. Everybody grows up in their own environment with the, with their family and the friends and and influences. And you know, looking back at it, I wish I had been an engineer and a computer scientist in college. I wish I had learned some of the, you know the technologies earlier. That I'd figured this out a little bit earlier. But you know, that's hard without you know having knowledge of of the of the broader world. So I encourage acquiring, trying to acquire that knowledge of what everything that is out there, that to do internships or to talk to people in a variety of different fields. And then the one thing that is consistent though is that I always wanted to do something that I felt would be impactful and positive for the world. That that was the reason for medicine. Quite an uh, obvious way to help people when there's they're in some form of medical distress, and that that's that I felt always felt that that would be a worthy and Fulfilling thing to do. Here, I I I feel similarly, but it's a different way. It's more about helping bring new technologies to market that can improve standard of living, but can also be an enabler to solve lots of these problems. There's a huge opportunity to use AI in healthcare, for example. Uh, And actually, one of the barriers to using uh, AI more in healthcare is is the the exact problems we're talking about: the, the black box nature and you have to build really safe models, so models that work consistently and that can be explained and understood by medical practitioners and also the patients. So have as broad horizons as you possibly can. Talk to as many people as you can about finding what your passion in life is um, would be the main, the main thing I would suggest. Uh, and then I would also just suggest don't be afraid to take the harder courses in, in college. Have that broaden your horizons from a, a class perspective as well. And, you know, I look back and, at some of the harder co- things that I did from a college perspective in terms of coursework and, and the like and, and say, I'm really glad that I did that and that if I had the opportunity, I'd do more. I'd do more of that. And, and even if it was hard and maybe I wouldn't get as good grades, it would be better to get the learning and get the skills than necessarily to worry too, too much about grades. Yeah.
1: Well, it sounds like you ultimately got what you needed to put you on the track to be where you are. So I think this has been great. Thank you so much for sharing this road with us, and it'll be really delightful to see how this new venture takes off for you and, and where it might lead. So thanks again, Will.
0: Thanks very much, Leslie.
1: That was Will Uppington, CEO and co-founder of True Era, which helps enterprises analyze machine learning, improve model quality, and build trust. Find out more at Truera, Though his first founder role, this certainly isn't his first rodeo in the technology startup world. He has started and grown a number of successful companies and products and always tries to do something that is both of personal interest to him and to use of the greater world. He lives in the San Francisco Bay Area with his wife, Lauren Curry Uppington, and their family. Each Monday, we post another full-length interview episode with a classmate of Will's, Lauren's, and mine as we walk the road this 25th year after college graduation. Join us on the journey by subscribing wherever you access your favorite podcasts or check us out at roadstakenshow.com. Thanks so much for listening. And if you really like what you're hearing, drop us a note at roadstakenshow at gmail.com. And please consider leaving a review on your podcast platform so that other people may find us more easily. Thanks so much for joining me, Leslie Jennings Rowley, on another Roads Taken.